Okay, this week I have something extremely special for you. I have enjoyed this new podcast that just dropped uh, in January 2023, and you're listening to it live because I've been able to clip so many really interesting and fantastic stories. Uh, this is one of the highest compliments I can pay to a podcast. Uh, it is new, it is high quality, it is absurdly good. So this is the GameCraft podcast from Mitch Lasky and Blake Robbins. Uh, Mitch from Benchmark, who is their specialized gaming investor. Um, and I think that is something that is overlooked and not taken seriously by programmers and business people because gaming is fun, but gaming can be one of the most serious and money-making businesses there are. And also, I think people don't under understand how much of our technology is downstream of gaming use cases um, and is figured out in gaming. And the gamification of software is a meme that I think is uh, well understood and should be taken very literally. So we should study how the game industry responded to the changes and um, basically try to adapt that for our situations, whatever uh, that may be, because the gaming industry is way more intense than basically any other software industry. So this one, we are going to start talking about the rise of free-to-play software and the rise of one of the largest and most impactful game studios in the world, which is Riot Games, which is no longer independently traded. It was acquired by Tencent in 2011 for $400 million. Tencent is now worth $500 billion. So, um, and, and, and Riot Games is probably one of their biggest assets. So it's reasonable to expect that, Ten that Riot Games is has about 1,000x since the acquisition. And also, it's reasonable to understand what it was like investing, being the first investor in Riot Games. And to do that, you have to go back in time to PC banks and internet cafes in Asia, and why specifically Asia versus the West, and why specifically it sprung out of piracy and the internet that this set off this entire chain of dominoes going from piracy, internet, internet cafes, free to play, dot, 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 Riot Games. When the internet started to come to the fore in the late 90s, early 2000s in Asia, they were centered around these internet cafes where you would go and have metered access to the internet. You'd buy a little, you know, a card or you'd buy time and you could go and do whatever you did, download porn, I don't know, whatever people <laughs> were doing in those days in internet cafes, sending email messages to your loved ones. And some of those entrepreneurs who owned those internet cafes saw the opportunity to put games in them and sell metered access to games. And this should have been okay from a publisher perspective. There should have been a way for the publishers to go in there and figure this out because technically these internet cafes, these gaming cafes, uh, which were called PC Bongs in yeah. Korea and they had other names throughout, throughout Asia, they should have been a source of sales for Western companies. But it turned out that most of them were just stealing the games that they were selling on metered for metered access oh anyway. Gosh. So it just compounded the piracy problem in a lot of ways. And if you played a game and you were paying metered access for that game, you were still paying for it and there was still an incentive to steal it. So again, I think those cafes didn't solve the problem. I wouldn't say they really necessarily added to the problem, but they were kind of a double-edged sword for the Western publishers. Because on the one hand, they were a l more legitimate than buying something out of the back of a pickup truck, but only a little bit more legitimate. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's super interesting because like those are 
there's all these factors that emerged within just culturally where they needed solution. And so I imagine they're looking, uh, the game developers in those areas at the time are looking at what is the possible solution. I imagine that they look at id and they're like, hey, they have something with this shareware thing. What happens next? Like, who actually comes up with this real concept of free-to-play? Well, so it's interesting because, as you say, and I think it's a really important point, it's the Asian companies themselves, the Asian video game Mm. developers, who solve the problem. The Western companies were still over there. I remember when I was at the Walt Disney Company, you know, our general counsel was going over to China and trying to negotiate, you know, Western-style copyright laws in the fingers-in-the-dike hope that they were going to kind of build a Western copyright enforcement regime in China, which was absolute madness, if you think about it. So while the Western companies were really playing defense during this period, trying to figure out how they protect their investment, it was the Asian companies themselves that looked at this problem and said, look, if we want to be in business in the long haul, we're going to need to figure out how to make this work. We're going to need to figure out how to make these markets where there's clearly an interest in gaming work at an economic level when we know that if we start trying to copy the Western publishers and printing shiny disks, we're going to end up in the same piracy situation that they've ended up in. So the brilliant thing that happened here was that it was the Asian companies themselves, in particular Nexon, who solved this problem. And obviously you have even even the best example in the West, which should have been id, they actually end up folding on the strategy. And they're like, wait, we're just going to go to the old package good model themselves. And so it really does take this Nexon or, or anyone, any of the Korean developers or Chinese developers to be like, oh, wait, we have to think of a native solution because whatever's going on in the West, they didn't think about innovating in the way that these people actually have an existential threat where they need to. And so what happens with Nexon? Like Nexon, obviously you just mentioned, is the real innovator here. Do they just immediately like copy the, the strategy of, of uh, shareware or what happens? No, they turn to the internet. So mm. I think by this point in our story, we're well into the 21st century. So now it's, you know, it's probably 2004, 2003, 2003, Nexon puts out a game in Korea called Maple Story on a free-to-play basis, and you're playing it online. So there isn't really a disc to, you know, there is a client, obviously, that you kind of download, but it's really more of an, an online play experience. As a result, you have a little bit more control, and they can figure out ways to sell you things in that context. But the real innovation happens in 2005 when they put out this game called Car Rider. And it's actually funny. I, I played MapleStory back in the day. Uh, and like that was like the first Nexon game that I, I played. What is Kart Rider? Because like I've looked up Kart Rider and, and it looks like it's just like a Mario Kart. Is, is that fair? It is absolutely fair. It is essentially Mario Kart. It's an online version of Mario Kart. You're playing against other people on the internet. It's cartoony. It's fast paced. And it's a racing sim, basically. And the innovation here, and this was, you know, you get back, you used the word innovation when you were introducing this a few moments ago. And I think that's really important to focus on because the Western publishers had what we classically understand to be an innovator's dilemma. And you ask about why id was kind of already on the decline here in 2005. Why weren't they a pioneer in this? And partly it's because they had so much stake in the legacy business. Just the catalog sales of their old games 
the sales of the games that were running on the Quake engine that they had licensed, the anticipation of Doom 4, which was coming out in a few years, and they, they'd already taken large advances against that, which are going to need it to be recouped, etc., created this pressure, this economic pressure that put them into this innovator's dilemma where they were almost incapable of seeing this next turn of the page, this next innovation. You had to really start almost from first principles like Nexon did in order to really make it work. And I think that was the brilliant thing that Nexon was able to bring to market with games like MapleStory and particularly Cartrider. And I think they could see in particular that there was an opportunity to sell things in the game that weren't necessary to complete the game, if you will. And that was really the distinction that they made from shareware. Because as long as the shareware model was in place where there was this monolithic thing called the game and you only got a part of it, there was still an incentive for piracy. The way they turned the model on its head with Cartrider by giving the entire game away for free, the whole game, all the fun bits, there was nothing you didn't get as a purchaser or as a player of that game for free that you would have gotten had you paid for it. You got everything. And so by doing that, and again, so radical, like I, I remember talking to Western publishers at the time because I would I, I was on the speaking circuit in those days and I would be giving talks at GDC or whatever and I would mention Cartwrighter and I'd talk to some of the old school publisher friends of mine in the audience and they would be like, it's crazy, they're crazy, they're giving the whole thing away for free. And it was crazy on a certain level, but it was also genius because they realized that their audience was a huge pipeline now where anybody who was interested in the game, there would be no friction to them playing it because there was no barrier. There's no financial barrier. So as long as they were capable of downloading the game, they were capable of playing it at the same level as any of their friends. And then they just upsold you cosmetic goods, other items that gave you status in the world. And again, that was just brilliant because when a community formed around the game, suddenly things like cosmetics and things like status had real value, had social value. And they capitalized on that. And Cartwrighter was a massive success and I think an underappreciated product in the history of the video game business. To take it a step further, it transforms the actual like addressable market, right? Like we, you and I are investors and so we think about total addressable market. They completely uncapped that. They removed all of the friction of you don't have $60 to play your game, so you can't buy it. So instead, you, you're now going into this world of it's completely free to play. And if I have a computer or if I have access to a PC bong, whatever it might be, I can go and play that game. That's a completely innovative way to think about this world. It is. And I think it's important to take a step back at this point and really talk about why to unpack that a little bit more and talk about sort of what problem does this really solve? And the problem it solves is the problem of elasticity in video game pricing. So I've told the story enough that people who've heard it are sick of it, but I'll tell it again, which is in the old days when we would sell a game for $60, if you sold it to someone like me or you, who was a game geek, who would go home and play it until their fingers bled, that person 
would pay you $60. At the same time, a casual player who was interested in the title had to go to the store, pay the same $60 that you or I would pay, would take it home, potentially only play it for an hour or five hours or 10 hours. And yet their cost for that experience was equivalent to our cost. So from the publisher's perspective, they were the same user, even though their play experiences were completely different. And so the beauty of the free-to-play model was that if it's tied to a flexible and an interesting enough monetization system, you unlock the elasticity of the market. So the five hour person maybe pays you nothing yep. because they don't find the experience to be that meaningful and they don't really want to pay for it. But the 150 or 250 or 500 hour player pays you way more than the $60 that they would have paid you because suddenly this game is now an important component of their lifestyle. And that is just a transformation in the video game business that really unlocked the future in a lot of ways. And we owe it in many ways to Cartrider and to the antecedents that they themselves studied in the Western markets, the, the rare goods economy of Ultima Online, something we'll talk about in episode four in the Forever Games, and the shareware model from id. It also transformed the incentive model of a game publisher at the time. You were no longer thinking about, okay, I need to go and release a sequel or uh, I need to just release a, a fourth game of the exact same genre or that IP. Instead, you're thinking about, okay, how do I actually just increase this lifetime value of this player? And so if there is someone that wants to play this game for a thousand hours, I need to figure out how to incentivize or update the game or think about building a game that truly can be played for a thousand hours. And so you start to see with Cartrider from my own perspective, this, this very early look of what a game can look like as, as a service. And Cartrider will continue to be mentioned throughout this entire series, but my gosh, it, it really did create that elastic demand where at that time, and even for me, you know, I I, I don't see free-to-play games as a, as a gamer myself until really League of Legends, which we'll touch on later on. But that that for me, I would think about a game, I'd buy it for $60 and I would be like, am I going to get 60 hours of gameplay from this? That was the simple calculation that I was thinking through. There was never this idea of, oh, I'm going to play this game for a thousand hours. And and maybe it was FIFA or maybe it was Call of Duty where I'm like, $60, that's a no brainer. Like, sure. Like, <laughs> like uh, I'm going to play this game for a full year and I'm only going to pay $60 for it. And so that that piece, uh, Cartrider really does help solve. And interestingly, it wasn't just you, the consumer, who were thinking about that. It was us, the developers and publishers, who were thinking about it that way too. We were thinking, wow, do we have enough gameplay in this to justify a $60 cost of goods. And so we ourselves looked at the 60 hours of gameplay for $60 as a metric by which we were trying to scope the games themselves. I remember a Lord of the Rings game that came out from Electronic Arts back in that period that was massively criticized for being short. It was like, mm. it was 15 hours of gameplay. And the critics were like, oh, it's too short. And EA's response was, well, there's four characters. And if you play each one of the four characters for 15 hours, it's 60 hours of gameplay. I mean, that was, those were the headstands that people were doing in order to come up with these backdoor justifications for the price of these products. And free-to-play just took that completely off the table. It's hard to really imagine how important that was at the time. So Korea takes off. And we in the West, those of us who were a little bit forward thinking back in that period, we were studying Cartwrighter. If you go back, I had Cartwrighter in slide decks go back in, in the first years after it came out because I thought it was so significant and something that I really wanted people that I was talking to to focus on as like the next innovation in our business. And so th while that's happening, the free-to-play model starts moving to China. 
So mm. China's an interesting market. You think about it, it's like the Chinese, they just really gave their PC business rocket boost because they banned consoles. Because they thought, oh, consoles were just for use as game devices. And so they were sort of, you know, morally less defensible than PCs, which could also be used for legitimate work. So by banning the consoles in this kind of morality way, they opened the door to a new PC industry in China that persists. In, it's one of the most robust PC gaming markets in the world to this day for that reason. So without console, they had PCs. They had their own version of the PC bong from Korea, this Chinese version called the Wangba. And they started to make games for their own market. And the first of them were basically ripoffs of some of the big Korean games, but with Chinese mythology and Chinese characters bolted on in place of the, of sort of the Korean games that they were copying. But very quickly, they became innovators and they started to work on their own versions of, of these free-to-play games. And then around the same time, the mobile business took off. And as we'll talk about in a future episode, mobile was absolutely the best soil to plant free-to-play. I mean, so <laughs> mobile took to free-to-play like no other platform. And so between those two things, almost all of the free-to-play innovation thereafter started coming out of China. All the things we think of today, like loot boxes and, mm. you know, all this stuff, they were all, they all had Chinese roots. It seems like they perfected the, the virtual goods model. You know, again, they innovated on on what Korea came out with and... They took it to a one step further, which is now obviously the groundwork for for almost everything in, in the gaming industry. You you mentioned uh, the Western side of this, where at some point the West wakes up. What does that look like? Do you have the incumbents waking up and being like, "Hey, China and Korea have figured out something and it's actually working," or is it you know more startupy? Like you're you're being scrappy at the time and you're like, "I'm trying to push this through." Well, there was an appetite in the Chinese and in the Korean markets for some of the Western IP. Mm. So that really was the door opener. But again, the innovator's dilemma really prevented a lot of the Western publishers from letting too much of those ideas of free-to-play into the market. I mean, again, there are executives in the video game business who'd break out in a cold sweat at the mention of the word free. They had a lot to defend, and they still do to this day. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe maybe we should talk about that, right? Like, there is a risk in going to free-to-play, right? You are making some calculation and bet on the conviction of your game will have, I don't want to say whales, but you'll have people that will pay back the people that will only play for five hours. Where in a traditional sense, you're like, $60 game, I know what I'm getting, like I can do the basic math of the calculation. There is this element of, oh my gosh, I'm taking a little bit of risk. You know, you and I both see that as there is, an, in theory, infinite upside, whereas there's capped upside in a traditional package good model. That innovator's dilemma is really scary for these traditional publishers. And it became even scarier as the development costs of the frontline products started to skyrocket. So it's one thing when you're investing a million to five million dollars in a product and you're basically saying, I'm not going to have an opening weekend. You're not going to be able to do the kind of crescendo marketing that they got very good at about driving people into those big box retailers to buy the end caps. There was a whole system that they had orchestrated that allowed them to move units of product and get, as you say, recoup those production costs. Hmm. But when you were no longer in the realm of $5 million games or $10 million games, but you were now in the realm of 30, 50, 75, $100 million games as we see today, things like Elden Ring. 
you got a real risk on your hands. It's much easier to justify to yourself doing it on a one-time purchase basis and relying on your marketing. Again, like in the feature film business, you know, a lot of times the studios will know they have a dog, but they'll put it out. They'll market the hell out of it. They'll know it's only going to last in theaters for two weeks, but they're just going to try and blow those two weeks out so they can recoup as much of the production costs as they possibly can. And Honestly, the video game business wasn't that different in those days. Sure, there were some products where you knew they were franchises, the Maddens, the Fifas, the Call of Duties, where you knew they were predictable hits year after year. And oddly, those were exactly the products that should have gone free to play. Yep. FIFA should be a subscription product. Like a guy like me, I love FIFA. I've, I've been playing FIFA since 1993. I was playing it on the 3DO, Trip Hawkins' <laughs> uh, console, short-lived, but a great, a great platform for FIFA back in the day. But anyway, I mean, FIFA, I should pay a subscription fee every year. Yep. And yeah, it's just there's the baked in like, oh, I know I'm going to make X hundreds of millions of dollars from it. And I don't want to risk, even if that could be higher, giving up that, which is obviously a, a bit of an insane thought for you and I where we're sitting. But that is still how they think. The fact that FIFA is still a $60 game in 2022 is pretty mind-blowing to me. And interestingly, some of the free-to-play developers have learned from the video game publishers some of those tricks of crescendo marketing. So you now see, for example, with uh, Fortnite or with Riot Games League of Legends, a game we're going to talk about in a minute, this idea of like the season, for example, or like the campaign or however they're branding it. But basically, it's an opportunity to re-energize the installed base, to bring people maybe who have lapsed or who are playing less frequently, to bring those people back to the game and get them back into a commercial frame of mind to buy the tools and to buy the things that they're going to need to be successful in those next missions. Yeah, and you think about like the battle pass that Fortnite and and Dota and, and I mean Fortnite really took it to a different level, but you have Dota coming up with these season passes, and that is is a real innovation where it's you know that there's events going on in League of Legends, which I play way too much of. They'll come out with, hey, this is the lunar event or something like that, and it's like play these missions, uh, you get XP, but if you pay for the battle pass, you'll actually get there faster or you'll unlock better things, and that is really how you can imagine FIFA being. Where when FIFA today, if it went free-to-play, you can imagine they actually tie it into like the natural seasons. Where exactly. it's, <laughs> it's like, okay, uh, we now have the new rosters coming out. We can update it for you. And do you want to buy the Battle Pass for this year? That's an amazing thing. And the key thing, I guess, for me, that's really interesting around free-to-play is that like the core tenet of it is they actually did give the game away for free. And what you see... Uh, the traditional incumbents fall into this trap of is they still want to grasp onto like a little bit of pay to win or like any ways that they can sort of get the guarantee that they're going to make their money. And that seems like almost the worst place to be within this where you have the traditional incumbents trying to switch where they're like, oh, look, like free to play can make a lot of money. Maybe we'll do a hybrid uh, where we'll do some DLC or something like that or downloadable content. And that is clearly the piece of this industry that a lot of people are very upset about because it's just like, I already paid the $60. I'm not even getting the, the full game. <laughs> now I have to pay to unlock characters or I have to pay to win. And uh, those those pieces are really broken within this industry still. Yeah, I mean, I think the, to your point, I think the conventional publishers were dazzled by the revenues and particularly the profits um, mm. because, you know, the profit margins on a game that's going to be in commerce for 10 years, that's going to be iterated, let's say on a seasonal basis, but really the fundamental game is still the same that's underlying it. The R&D costs, the development costs, 
necessary to create that game are far, far less than they are to like get the whole studio infrastructure cranked up on an annual basis to hit this gold master deadline so that they can get the games pressed onto CDs and into packages. It's a very different kind of experience. There's a lot more overtime in that model. Now, not to say that there's not a lot of work involved in, in supporting a game as a service over time, and we'll talk about that a lot in the Forever Games episode. But frankly, the cost structure makes it such that those games, those long-term free-to-play games are way more profitable. Hmm. And so they looked at that and they were dazzled by it. And their response was things like FIFA Ultimate Team, where you're buying card packs on top of a game you already paid 60 bucks for. So you could get players that you'd want, I mean, I think as part of the, the underlying experience. But I think you're absolutely right. I think DLC is kind of a a broken hybrid in that regard because it takes in some ways the worst of free to play and yes. marries it with the worst of packaged goods. You know, it works to a certain extent, but you also it, this is where the innovators dilemma comes in where that's their innovation, right? Is like, "Yeah, we're still going to do our $60 game and we're going to have this other, you know, somewhat free to play aspect within it once you have it or or some extra content." And that is just the worst case scenario. Well, there's two reasons again, we go back to the fundamentals of free to play. One of them is expanding the funnel, so it's broader reach. And one of them is monetizing in an elastic manner. And really, DLC only hits the monetizing in the elastic manner. DLC is whale bait. Yes. But it does nothing to expand the audience because the audience is still limited by the $60 initial purchase. So I think that's my objection to DLC, really. I don't think DLC is as disruptive. I couldn't have said it better myself. It's just that they went after the one part, which is like, let's capture the whales. And you actually could have had way more whales. Uh, like, that's the part that they're missing is you could have expanded this to a way bigger audience. And and that, that's the unfortunate part. So let's go back and talk about how these models came back to the Western markets, which I think is fascinating in a, in a certain way. So, you know, initially... As we saw, like these were propagating through the Asian markets, initially in Korea, then in China, where, as you say, they were pretty much perfected in the Chinese PC gaming market and later in the Chinese mobile market. And suddenly the Western companies started to get hip to this. And I think the first people who really understood it were the casual games publishers, in particular companies like Zynga. Because Zynga, by and large, I mean, their their big hit, Farmville, was kind of a clone of a Chinese game called Happy Farm. Uh, that had come out a couple of years earlier, and it was a free-to-play game. So they sort of understood kind of how to do it from looking at the Chinese example, and they did it really well, and Farmville was a massive success in the West. But the video game business, as they often do with casual gaming, and we're going to return to this theme again and again in our in our episodes, the core business looks at the casual business as being somehow a different business. They just don't even see it as being the same video game business. And so it's a terrible shame because so many innovative and interesting things come out of the casual business, but that the core business ends up being blind to. That said, a bunch of these innovations that were coming back into the Western markets in the form of real free-to-play, not the shareware model, not any of these other kind of early models, but like real free-to-play, were showing up in casual, were showing up in Facebook games, things that the core games industry could easily dismiss as being kind of compartmentalized and not really worthy of their study. Yes, and that's a key part, which is you, let's talk about in 2010, right? You end up studying it. I imagine at this point, you're you're paying attention closely to Farmville and you're seeing, okay, look, this is a real thing that's working in casual. 
In, in 2010, what happens? There's this amazing moment, I think, in your career where, where you finally get to apply all of your learnings uh, that you're paying attention to. So yeah, in 2010, I get a call. I was working in Los Angeles. Um, I was at Benchmark, but I was doing a lot of work in Los Angeles at the time. And I got a call from like three different people that I knew in the LA business community who all wanted to introduce me to the same company at the same time. I'm a curious person and I want to go and investigate. And so I schedule a meeting and I go over there and the company was Riot Games. I come in, they have nothing. They had a wireframe, kind of. They had a design and they had a pitch. And they started to go through their pitch and it was unbelievable. They were so, so smart. They were so smart. And they understood not only the free-to-play concept, but they understood how to bring an audience to the table to prime the pump of free-to-play. Hmm. And so they said, look, we're going to make a hardcore game. There's this play pattern called Defense of the Ancients that is a mod of Warcraft 3, a very well-known game. The problem is that this Defense of the Ancients mod, again, mod, remember that, we'll come back to that, but this Defense of the Ancients mod was a pain in the ass because Warcraft 3 is out of print. Like, you can't even, you have to, you're buying copies off eBay of Warcraft 3 so you could play Dota. And they were like, look, we're going to modernize that game. We're going to make it free to play. We're going to do it all games as a service on the internet. You're not going to need anybody else's engine. We're going to rewrite the engine ourselves fundamentally. We're going to build our own commercial layer on top of it. We're going to sell virtual goods to the hardcore gamer. And we're going to reinvigorate this by essentially bringing a lot of the people who were involved in the Dota community over to our side to kind of join the pirate army here. And we're going to use that to build a bridge that's going to prime our go-to-market. And it was so brilliant. I mean, it's just, it's even brilliant talking about it now. Yeah. And if somebody came and pitched you that today, you'd be like, hell, I'll do that. <laughs> so that's how I felt. And I came back and told my partners, like, this is it. This is the thing. This is the virtual goods for the core game that we've been looking for. Because um, my partners and I had all been studying the Chinese models and looking for ways that we could build bridges from those Chinese models back to America. And this really was it. So so we did it. We greenlit it. We And we made the first institutional investment in Riot Games. Okay. Believe it or not, that was just the first episode of GameCraft. This is the shortest I can make this clip because it is so important. Free to play is so extremely important. Think about the free trials that you get as business software. Think about the incentives that you get and how people get creative and work around it. Think about how investing wise, if people come to you with the right pitch, you have to go and spot it because it's not going to be obvious to everyone, but it was obvious to Mitch and he made the investments and he's rich because of that. <laughs>